The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Hi, everybody. Welcome to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. It is, believe it or not, New Year's Eve. I kind of can't believe it myself. Um, But I have a great New Year's resolution for all of you, and that is to make a plan for your college admissions process uh, and another plan for how you're going to pay for college uh, now. And we're going to be here to help you do that. We'll be here all year to help you do that. And even today's show is really dedicated to giving you information that's going to be helpful to you throughout the process, whether you're a parent or an eighth grader or a current senior. Um, Most of today's show actually is about planning ahead, whether that is getting ready to fill out the FAFSA or making sure that you have the high school courses and extracurricular activities to put you in the best possible position to get into an undergraduate business program. Um, But first, we're actually introducing a new series on extracurricular activities, something that we've been hearing from a lot of you that you'd like to hear more about. Uh, And today we're talking about the best kind of involvement for kids who are obsessed with video games which, by the way, describes my 11-year-old son. Uh, and I asked Ken and Dick, who is my colleague here at College Coach and also a former admissions officer at Swarthmore and Drexel, to join me to talk about this today because he's actually worked with a few really interesting kids uh, who fit this profile and has some really great stories and advice to share. So welcome, Kenan. Thanks for joining us. Sure. My pleasure, Beth. Uh, so... I have a son. He's 11. Uh, He's only in middle school. There really isn't a requirement yet that he get involved, although we do have some involvement that I'm I'm encouraging him to do. But right now, he is home playing video games. It's one of the first things he does when he gets home from school. Uh, And it's Mm -hmm. certainly a real interest for him. And I have a feeling that might describe a lot of, especially young boys, although I suppose not exclusively young boys. Um, So, can you tell me a little bit about, I guess, first of all, does playing video games equal an extracurricular activity from a college's perspective? That's a really good question. <laughs> and I think there's a lot of parents out there with, um, that are hoping that I say yes. Yes. Um, but the reality, I think, is that, um, it, I mean, it's an activity that they do, but it's not what we would consider an extracurricular activity in the traditional sense. So, you know, I uh, I have a 14-year-old uh, who sounds a lot like your son. So, you know, he comes home and you know, has a snack and, uh, you know, off to the Xbox, right? Yep. Um, yep. And, and that's kind of his, his first instinct. But um, so I think, you know, that's fine for that outlet. And, you know, for a lot of boys um, and, and gals, it's, it's, um, it's kind of a social outlet as well because, you know, they're all on, you know, talking over the Internet, et cetera. 
Mm-hmm. But I think it's um, the special few where they can actually turn that interest into something else. And as you mentioned before, I had um, a few students who really had an interest in this from a variety of different perspectives. And, and I think kind of the, the different interests refl- was reflected in how they pursued them in their extracurriculars. Got so, it. All right. Just to, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, why don't we start with the first one? Tell us a little bit about, um, you know, the interest that the student had and, and the strengths that they had and, and what they got involved in. So maybe the student who's at USC now. Okay. Yeah, and I think um, in his case, he was by far, um, I think, the most directly interested in, in video game production. And, um, and so this had been an interest for him for quite a long time, and he had made that transition from being a, you know, a, a user to someone mm-hmm. who really is interested in how this comes together. So he started rather early, um, late, I think it was um, late in middle school, he started going to ID tech technology camps and started to learn some of the technology behind how these games are constructed. So he really got into... Um, not only the programming and, you know, C++ and Java and then some of the other um, programs that they use, but they, he also got into uh, 3D design. He got into um, special programs for, for actually modeling the game. So, you know, when this character does this, then these two reactions happen and kind of mapping out how all of that's going to take place. So I think he was probably, the, or I would say definitely the most into it. Some of the other things that he did, um, in addition to some of these camps, was um, he was one of the very lucky few who actually got an internship at BioWare Mythic. And so um, for a high school kid to have that kind of opportunity is, is pretty darn rare. But he had built up enough of those skill sets and, um, and actually was a student who went every year to, um, to the big... Uh, and I'm forgetting the name, but the um, the, the big, um, what am I trying to say? Is it a conference, uh, maybe? Uh, yeah, it's like it's like the electronics conference. It's when, you know, all the, all the games kind of have their um, their debut of, of the different technologies that they're they're going to release that year. And, and it has a name, and I can't remember what it is. I but, can't think of it either, um, and I used to do PR for it, so you would think I could remember it, but I can't either. So... <laughs> anyway, maybe if it comes It'll to you come later, to us, you can sure. uh, bring it back up. So he went to that sure. every year. Right. And the cool thing was that he started to make connections. So he would talk to the vendors. He would talk to the people who um, you know, were, were uh, in these companies and uh, the programmers and see what they were doing and what was coming out next and how they produced this and would really kind of get in into you know, those kinds of conversations and develop those contacts and actually kept um, those contacts hot. So um, by the time that he applied for this uh, internship, um, he had, when he went in for the interview, he knew all these people. He knew what they were doing. He knew what uh, the technologies and the competitors were doing. So um, there was a lot that he could bring to bear, and that made him a really attractive candidate for, for that internship. Um, so he felt you know, certainly initially that the pace was a little bit over his head, but he kind of adapted fairly quickly and mm-hmm. thought it was you know, one of the best things ever and it really solidified his desire to be in that industry. Got it. And I looked it up. It's E3. 
the Electronic Entertainment mm-hmm. Expo. Is that what you were thinking? There, that's the one. That's the yep. one. Exactly. So that's one. And then just in case uh, listeners didn't catch it, the camps that started all of this were the ID Tech Camps. And those are all over the country, right? I mean, I know they have some Correct. near me. Um, they have locations all over the country, and students can take kind of a variety of I guess they're like courses, but with real hands-on experience in all different types of tech areas through those ID tech camps. Got it. Exactly. Yeah, and there's all sorts of different courses and modules that you can take, and and he participated in this um, every summer um, throughout the latter half of middle school and through high school. Got it. Okay. So, and what's he majoring in now at USC? He's in game design. Of course. Well, that works. That makes sense, right? So you never know the hot new game next year could be designed by your former student, which is kind of exciting. Um, You have another who was more focused on the digital arts so and and ended up at the um, Savannah College of Art and Design. Can you tell us a little bit more about her and and kind of the path that she took outside of the classroom? Sure. Um, So I think Compared to um, my USC kid, I think she was a bit more "quote unquote" normal in, in terms of um, you know how she got to this, and this wasn't something that she you know has has been wanting to do forever and ever. You know, unlike mm-hmm. my other student, so um, she kind of came to it in her sophomore junior year. She thought that this might be a good idea, but her her path was much more in graphic design. She wasn't really interested as much in. Um, you know, in, in how the games develop and, and, you know, how the modules fit together and things of that nature, she was much more in, into the art. And, you know, the, everything is kind of taking place in the scenery that, um, that the artists would create in these worlds that they're creating completely out of their imagination. That was mm-hmm. the part that she really loved. So, um, you know, she pretty much took advantage of anything that was graphic art related that she could do in high school which she found kind of limiting. I mean, she did yearbooks, she did, um, you know, all sorts of projects with, you know, t-shirt design and things like that, which were kind of minimal in, in terms of using these um, skills. So what she felt she had to do was kind of do things more on her own. And she took some coursework online, but for the most part, she was developing um, her, her skills through kind of a mentorship with her art teacher at school. So she took to the traditional art classes and you know, and kind of developed those skills as much as she could. But it was through this mentorship program that she really kind of turned that more to graphic design. Got it. That's, um, that's very cool. And, then, and is that was that unique to her school, or is that something she just created in working with her art teacher? It was something she created with her art teacher. So um, so she kind of had to create her own opportunities there. Um, mm-hmm. It wasn't something that was in the traditional curriculum that she could take advantage of. I mean, certainly taking AP art was something that they offered, but she wanted to kind of take that in a little bit of a different direction. Got and it. So that's where the mentorship with her art teacher came in. Got it. And I, you know, I think that's a, a really important point to make for our listeners, which is that sometimes there aren't going to be traditional ways to do the things that are interesting to a student. And that shouldn't mean, well, there are no options 
for me, so I won't do anything, or I'll just go downstairs and keep playing video games and not worry about it. Um, it's not necessarily every kid who can work out a mentorship with their art teacher, but if they're really passionate about it or really interested in learning more with a little bit of prodding um, on the parent's side and maybe a call to the guidance counselor who could help as well, um, even the kid who wouldn't ordinarily do something like that might be able to create an interesting opportunity for him or herself. So that's really cool. Um, so she is, she's at SCAD right now. Is there anything else I, 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 that she did outside of the classroom that you wanted to mention, or now she's at college and, and doing digital art and loving it? Right. And, and I think that, again, the, the, the way that some of these students um, kind of approached this was, felt a little bit piecemeal. But I think that for a lot of these programs, that's kind of normal for them, that there's not a particular path. I mean, if you're interested in biology or something a little bit more traditional, I think mm -hmm. that um, you know, the, the way to express those interests um, over the summers is a little bit more straightforward. But for many of these students, they do have to kind of take their interests and the slice of this industry, which is a wide industry, everything from you know, hardcore programming to, um, to the the storytelling of um, of these particular games. And it could be an interest that's anywhere along that spectrum. So I think for her, um, she had uh, an interest in film. She had an interest in art. She had the mentorship. And so she went to SCAD and, and felt like she was going to develop that there. But she knew it was in the graphic design realm that she was going to spend most of her, her focus. So okay. I think, um, so for her, the the high school experience was something that she kind of pieced together. And I have another student who went directly to, to art school um, and a school that has a, a, a game design, but it wasn't necessarily the strength of their curriculum. And mm -hmm. he was primarily an artist and, um, and he um, really had a focus in anime and wanted to uh, take that to um, develop uh, a niche in, in anime with game design as well and kind of um, allow that to flourish a little bit more. So he, um, he was, again, much more in the art courses, um, did a lot of art camps over the summer, um, focused on, on that skill, and then later in his high school um, career started to work on the programming aspect of it and develop uh, different software skills so that he could make that anime come to life. Yeah. And so, again, he had a very different pathway from the other two in terms of what um, he wanted to do in this field and how he approached it. So, it. Um, so he went to you know, a, a pretty specific art school um, and, and is kind of approaching it, again, from a different perspective. And, and the goal for all three ultimately is to work in kind of this world, either hardcore creating the video uh, games or, you know, just kind of maybe marketing the video games. But that's the world that they are most interested in, in being a part of. Is that true? Correct. Okay. Correct. And I think one thing that I would love for listeners to take away as well is that maybe you're sitting and listening and thinking, well, my kid just likes playing video games. You know, he doesn't want to study video games ultimately or even necessarily be involved in creating them or marketing or even being involved in that world beyond playing them. 
Um, and, and that is probably the case for a lot of students. I mean, the students you're describing here ultimately found that they could make a living in this world that they loved. Um, but there are still some great ideas for getting involved for kids who just simply like playing video games, like an ID tech camp or um, classes outside of school, which, by the way, count as extracurricular activities or creating a mentorship or even, you know, one idea that I've had, and I know I never know if anyone's ever followed up on it is, you know, create a club at your school. It's a little silly, but sometimes just the, the mere fact of having a club where you are, the goal is to play video games, but maybe do it a little more socially than talking online and kind of getting together in one room and doing it together it's, it, it gives it legitimacy and it gives it a little bit more impact and you can list the name of a club and you can say how many hours per week and how many weeks per year. It certainly can't be the only thing that a student does, but it is something else that a student can do in terms of taking their video game interests and um, translating it into an extracurricular activity. Um, Kenan, before we wrap, is there anything else, any other suggestions you have just for the kid who's who really likes playing video games and whose parent is saying uh, you really need to do something outside of the classroom. Any other recommendations? Well, for the, the kid who really likes to play, one of the things that does jump to mind is that, you know, for my student who's at USC, he, um, as a part of those contacts he made at E3, one of the things that he did was he kind of got into the beta testing. So mm-hmm. it was his job to you know, to play these games and to try to break them. I mean, try to figure out where they broke down and, and where there was problems in the coding that, um, that the, you know, that they had overlooked. And so, you know, his job was to play these things um, and try to kind of go through every pathway, make every decision that they could. Um, and, you know, just like, you know, what happens if you like run this the character into a telephone pole, right? What happens then? Yep. And, and just yep. see, you know, do that over and over again. And if you hit walls, this happens. But if you hit a telephone pole, that happens. Um, and then kind of report all of these bugs back to um, to the creators. So awesome. you know, for a kid who likes that kind of thing, you know, that that could be a way of kind of getting their feet wet in that in that industry and mm-hmm. and do something that's fun, but also do something that's constructive. Absolutely, and then that potentially earns them money or places. free games. And I mean, if all else fails, a job at GameStop is not, you know, necessarily a bad idea mm-hmm. for a kid who just wants to be around video games all the time. Kevin, there mm-hmm. is some great stuff here. I took notes and wrote a list for myself of things that I could um, have my son get involved in when he's a little bit older. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. It was great. Okay, great. Well, after the break, we're going to be talking about what you need to know to fill out the FAFSA. So don't go away. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, 
What options are available to pay for college? And most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application? We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, Jan Combs, who's a former financial aid officer at Harvard and Boston University and who currently works a college coach, um, she's here to tell us what you need to know before sitting down to complete the FAFSA. And the first thing I'm going to say before I ask a question of Jan or even welcome her to the show is you should not be afraid. People get very concerned about filling out the FAFSA, but it is not that hard, believe it or not. And Jan's going to give us all the tips that you need to know. So, Jan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Well, very excited to have you here. We have a lot of information to share, so I want to jump right in. Um, And I guess my first question for you is, what kind of information should families gather together and have available when they're completing the FAFSA and and, or the CSS profile form? Sure. And, And thank you for telling families, you know, right off the bat that, you know, it's not as scary as it seems and they absolutely can do it. And I do like to start off on a positive note. And so certainly this is the time of year families need to start preparing to complete the FAFSA. And for those that might be just joining in, the FAFSA is the free application for federal student aid. And that is the main financial aid form used by all colleges in the country to determine eligibility for federal aid, as well as in most cases for institutional aid as well. And in addition to the FAFSA, so there's another form called the CSS Profile that's used roughly by about 275 mostly selective private colleges. So those two forms um, will need to be completed for, um, you know, for the student to be considered for financial aid. And there's definitely some things that you can be doing now to make that process uh, more easy, uh, you know, uh, more helpful. Think that it will be helpful to you um, for an easier process for sure. So certainly having a list of colleges that the student has applied to or is planning on applying to is very important because you'll need that information for both FAFSA and those colleges that require the CSS profile. 
And um, in addition to that, families can start just gathering basic information such as social security numbers for both student and parent. It's very important. Valid email addresses are also necessary, one for student, one for parent. Um, in addition, the last case of the year will be very helpful to families, uh, both students and parents, um, to estimate their income. And then other helpful documents uh, that come to mind are the most recent tax return. So perhaps the tax return from 2014 will be very helpful, as well as bank statements and investment statements, because the FAFSA and the profile form both ask for both income-related and asset-related information when the family's completing it. So those are kind of the things that come to mind best that families should start gathering together in order to prepare for completing both FAFSA and CSS profile if required by those colleges. Got it. So, I mean, I think the key takeaway here is one of the things that can make this field daunting is you're being asked questions and you're sort of like, oh, my God, I don't know where to find that information. Where is that document? And then you have to spend an hour looking for it and then you come back and you don't remember what you were even answering. So if you take your advice and gather up all of this information into one folder and then sit down to complete it, it's likely to take you a whole lot less time because they're going to say, okay, we need line 10 from this form. You go through your folder. There's that form. Here's the information on line 10. You fill it in. You're moving on to the next question. It's, it's kind it, of just yes. that simple. Absolutely. I can't, okay. recommend, um, I can't recommend enough just gathering the information first. If you have your most recent tax returns as well as all your main you know, bank statements and investment statements and, you know, key demographic information about both the student and the parent, it will be a much easier process. But I will say if you are kind of halfway through doing the FAFSA and, and you need to step away, perfectly okay. You can save your information and go right back into the FAFSA in order to finish completing it. So it's okay, um, you know, as well if you do need to step away and get some additional information. Right, you're not going to have to start all over again, which is good. absolutely not. As long as you're saving, as you know, you go through each page. So it's very, um, you know, you must go to the bottom um, and click on that save button in order for for the data to save. But you know, you absolutely can stop and start as you need to. Great, and that's a good tip. So, what another thing you're going to need, um, student is going to need, and the parent and student is going to need are federal ID. So, how do they get that um, in order to complete the the forms? Sure. So, the federal ID. Um Parents and students can actually go online to the, the FAFSA site now if they would like to. They don't have to. They can certainly wait until January when they're going to complete the FAFSA, but they can absolutely go on now to the FAFSA site. There's a link right there that allows you to click on it and sign up for a federal ID. And essentially that is... Um, like a username um, that the family, the parent, and the student will actually utilize to electronically sign their FAFSA. And that's the, federal, the same federal ID that they'll use for every single year that the student is caught in the college. So you do it once the first time, it enables you to log into the FAFSA program and electronically sign and submit it when you're finished um, completing it. So you can go to the FAFSA.gov site now and um, click on the little link, and you'll go in, and you will give a valid email address, as well as your first name, last name, 
your social security number, and your date of birth. You'll need that information in order to sign up for the federal ID. You'll then get an email response from the Federal Processing Center, which requires you to click on the link and validate that link. And once you've done that, then you've set up your federal ID. It's very simple. It's very straightforward. It only takes a few minutes. Again, you can do it now or um, you can do it um, in January when you actually complete the FAFSA. And I just want to be clear, the parent has their own federal ID and the student has their own federal ID. So it's separate. So two separate IDs and two separate email accounts. You cannot share an email account. You must have your own. Got it. Okay. So now they've gathered their documents. They have their federal ID. When do they need to? I think you've mentioned January a couple of times. I mean, is yeah. that the timing for completing the FAFSA? And do you complete the FAFSA at the same time that you complete the CSS profile? How does that part work? Sure. Definitely timing is very important. Let's spend a little bit of time on that. So as far as the FAFSA goes specifically, if you're a current senior in high school, you should absolutely complete the FAFSA in January of 2016. I mean, that's really just to ensure that you meet all the priority filing deadlines by the colleges. Some colleges have deadlines on February 1st. Some are later. So I would say just use it as a guide. Do it in January, and then you'll be assured to be on time and meet all those priority deadlines. So just like setting up your federal ID, you go to the online FAFSA portal, which is FAFSA.gov, okay? Um, And then you'll start your FAFSA form, and you'll do that in January. And so essentially, it's information about the student as well as um, the student's parent or parents that they live with. Um, And... By having your most recent taxes on hand, that will help you, as well as the other documents that I mentioned earlier. And then, um, you know, that's really the, the, the timing of it all. It's important to know that, obviously, most families don't have their real taxes done. Um, you know, when current seniors are completing their FAFSA in January, the FAFSA is going to ask questions about their 2015 tax year. And obviously, none of us will have our taxes done in January. So well, families yes, it's unlikely anyway, right? Um, so families will estimate to the best of their ability. They can use that, you know, 2014 tax return as a guide along with their last pay stub or income statement and estimate to the best of their ability based on, you know, the information they have. And then when they do their taxes, you know, whether it's March or April, they can go back into the FAFSA program and use a pretty cool tool called the IRS Data Retrieval Tool which will um, assume within a few weeks of submitting your taxes, you can actually pull your real-life 2015 tax information over from the IRS into your FAFSA, and then you'll be able to update it at that time. So you do kind of need to go in there twice, you know, once in January to complete it so that you meet all those deadlines, and then you go back in again, whether it's March or April or early May, um, you go in again and update it with real life 2015 tax information. So that's kind of how it works with a FAFSA. 
And, and, and just let me interrupt one sec before you move on sure. to the CSS profile. When you um, use the IRS data retrieval tool and you kind of replace the estimated information with the actual information, does that then automatically get updated with the colleges or do you have to resend anything to the colleges? As, as long as you're saving the information and resubmitting it, then it will automatically be updated with all of the colleges, to all of the colleges, absolutely. Got it. So when you say resubmit, you just mean you've gone in, you've made the changes, and you've saved the changes. You Is there a them. submit button at the bottom, or how does yes, that work? Exactly. Exactly. You always have to make sure um, when you're doing this after, you're always scrolling down to the bottom of the page, saving on every page, and then when you get to the end, you're submitting it. Got Absolutely. It. Okay. Perfect. Okay. Um, all right. So now on to the CSS profile. I apologize. I interrupted. No, no worries. It's good to be clear because it's, it's good information for family. So as far as the CSS profile, um, it's a little different than the FAFSA. As I mentioned, the FAFSA is done in January, and it's actually not even available until January 1st, the FAFSA. So you can't actually do your FAFSA before January. The CSS profile, on the other hand, is available now. And you can access that through the College Board's website and just click on the Financial Aid tab and it will bring you to the profile that is available now. You actually, if if your child is applying regular admission, you can absolutely do the CSS profile in January pretty much at the same time that you do the FAFSA. It's a lot of the same information, so the same documents that you've collected to do the FAFSA, you can absolutely use for the CSS profile form. If your child applies early decision or early action, um, obviously those deadlines are passed. Some of those colleges might have wanted you to do the CSS profile form earlier. If that's the case, you can absolutely go on now if you already haven't and complete the CSS profile form. If not, certainly do it in January right around the same time that you do the FAFSA. Got it. And then also, just to be clear, uh, for those families who are um, listening and thinking, oh, that my, this school that my child's applying to does require the CSF profile, you always have to do the FAFSA. And then some places, you also must do the CSS profile. It's not an either or. Exactly. So the FAFSA is used by every single college in the country to determine eligibility for federal financial aid. And most colleges are only going to use the FAFSA and also use it for their own institutional funds. It's just those 275 or so mostly private, highly selective colleges that use the CSS profile form as an additional form beyond the FAFSA. Okay, so definitely FAFSA everywhere, and then just those handful of schools use that additional form as well. Okay, got it. All right, so now you've applied for aid, you went back, you did the data retrieval, you've updated everything. Um, What should families do now? Sure. So so after you complete the FAFSA and CSS if you need it, um, certainly all of those applications are submitted electronically um, to the colleges specifically. So the family's information is sent off electronically um, as far as the FAFSA goes and processed by that central processing area, and then that information is sent to all the colleges listed on the FAFSA. Families will get a student aid report back either in the mail or email if they gave a valid email address. And that basically is a summary of what the family 
put on the FAFSA. So it's a good opportunity for the family to look at it, make sure they didn't make any mistakes. If they did make any mistakes, go back into the FAFSA system, update, you know, whether it's, um, you know, new tax information or another update that you need to do, you can go back in and update and then resend the information to the colleges. CSS profile, you will also get um, what's called a CSS profile acknowledgement form. And that, again, is very similar. It's a summary of the information that you sent to the schools, and it gives you an opportunity to check over your information and contact the schools if you need to make any updates. Certainly, after that is received, um, then once the student has been accepted to the colleges, then they let the financial aid office know. And then at that point, the aid office is able to kind of act on the data that they've received, both from FAFSA and CSS profile, if appropriate. And then at that point, the aid offices will look at all of the information and make a decision about financial aid eligibility. And then send families out what's called a financial aid decision letter or financial aid award letter. And that will essentially list all of the different forms of financial aid, uh, grants, uh, loans, uh, federal work programs. Um, it will list all of the different programs that the student is eligible for. families will receive that um, in, in two different ways. It's important to know that some colleges still send it, you know, paper via snail mail. Um, so you might get a letter in the mail with your financial aid decision. But more and more colleges are using um, electronic ways of sending the financial aid award letter as well. And it typically will go to the student, either to the student's um, the portal at the school where they applied through or some other way. So families, uh, parents, and students should be um, hopefully in in good uh, communication with each other, um, making sure they're looking at both paper things that are coming in as well as um, electronic forms of aid offers as well. Great. Jan, thank you so much. This was super helpful information. Um, For families who are curious, we have lots of actually really great segments on um, how the colleges view the different pieces of um, the information that you're providing to them on how to figure out what kind of financial aid award you might be awarded before you even apply. Um, but this is really great nuts and bolts of the actual application process, and I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining today. You're very welcome. Don't go away. We're going to be right back uh, to talk about the best preparation for admission to an undergraduate business program. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, 
how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Families today face unique challenges. Marriage, parenting, and family forms have changed a lot in the last century. Family Matters with Dr. Virginia Collin will focus on building and maintaining healthy family relationships. We will discuss marriage, divorce, family mediation, parenting, lifestyles, and mental health. All kinds of family matters. Our show will feature guest experts and your participation, too. You can listen to Family Matters live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everybody. This next segment is the latest in our high school plan series. We've been doing these for the past few weeks. Uh, I think a couple weeks ago, we talked about admission to pharmacy programs um, and how to best plan for that. Um, we talked about, uh, preparing for med school. So if you're interested in some of those pieces, uh, take a look at our archives, but today we're talking about business. Uh, and that's why I'm particularly excited to have my colleague, Christine Kenyon with us. Uh, she just happens to be a former admissions officer from Babson university, which is one of the strongest undergraduate business schools in the country. So she knows what she's talking about. Hi, Christine. Hey Beth, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Um, And I guess I would add that I also have some opinions about this um, from my time at Penn when I read a lot of applications to Wharton's undergraduate program. So I think between the two of us, we should have some great insight to share to people, with people, excuse me, um, whether or not they're applying to one of those very selective programs or just looking at business at the local state school um, I think that this will apply, and obviously, the more selective the um, the school, the more important some of the pieces are that we're going to talk about. But why don't we start with the academic side of things, since when you read an application, you start with the transcript. What kinds of things were particularly important um, for a student to have taken in high school, uh, given that their goal when they applied to Babson was to do business? Yeah, it's a great question, Beth. And, um, you know, I think right off the bat, one of the things that we always looked most closely at um, on an applicant's transcript was their math, the math courses that they had taken throughout high school. So just as you said earlier, you know, the level of competitiveness for the college to which you're applying, you know, the 
rigor of the coursework you take will vary. Um, but one thing that I think is pretty standard across the board for business programs is that we want to see that um, you're able to handle a little bit of rigor when it comes to uh, the more quantitative aspect of your high school curriculum. So at Babson, um, being a little bit more selective, we would look for four years of a high school math, absolutely. And then in the senior year, we would look to see what level of math did the students take through. They absolutely had to take math through the pre-calculus level because calculus was a freshman introductory class at Babson, so you had to have that foundational base there. Um, but beyond that, we would look to see, okay, did they they take calc? Did they take any AP classes? Did they take statistics? Um, additionally, we would look to see any other more um, quantitative aspects of the curriculum. So uh, we tended to see some students who, if they were strong in math, they were also strong in science um, or economics. And so we would look to see, okay, numbers-wise, how do they fare when it comes to the more quantitative aspect of, of their curriculum in high school? Got it. And and I think um, you bring up a really good point, which is that was what Babson was looking for at Penn. Even we were hoping to see AP Calc. And mm-hmm. I can't remember admitting a student who didn't have that level of math um, at Wharton, um, which is probably the most selective undergraduate business program in the country. But there are many, many business programs out there. I've had students apply where pre-calc was fine, um, possibly even Algebra 2. Um, mm-hmm. But one, you know, through line, I think for any student, um, my advice would be stick with the academic math all four years. So there are some schools, and I'd be interested, Christine, to hear your take on this, but there are definitely schools where maybe accounting might be considered a math class, and you could take that in lieu of academic math, and the high school would still count it as a credit towards graduation, and it would fulfill the math requirement, um, but that would not have been an appropriate choice for my program or for the program at Wharton, it's not my program, for the program at Wharton. <laughs> um, and, I, you know, it's certainly not something I encourage for students, regardless of whether they're applying to Penn State or to, um, I don't know, um, any of the UCs or um, a Cal State um, campus program. And, mm-hmm. and that, what were your thoughts about that at, at Babson? Yeah, you're absolutely right. We would absolutely want to see the academic math. Um, and I think that a lot of students were surprised when they heard that, you know, oh, you know, my high school has a course that we can take in marketing. It has an accounting class, and I can take that and apply it towards my high school graduation. Well, that's great. I think that business is one of the most flexible um, courses to kind of study and, and the most flexible career paths, more specifically, um, for college graduates. So because of that, what's more important than showing that you already have a knowledge base in marketing or economics or accounting in high school is just showing that you have the foundational basics in your academic core courses in order to succeed at college because everything you need to learn about the business world, Babson was ready to teach you. So you just we just need to make sure that you have the foundational base of, of your curriculum ready to go. Yeah, and it might surprise people to know that that was the attitude um, at Wharton as well. Their expectation was, they always said, you know, they're going to learn accounting when they get here. They're going to learn about those pieces when they're here. We would rather see them taking math, science, English, history, and foreign language than um, spending a lot of time 
uh, supplementing with electives was fine, but replacing with electives right. was not something that, that we wanted to see. And I see that in the admissions processes at business programs um, all over the place that my students are applying to. So I think that that's a fairly common theme. Not that you need to be an AP calculus, but that you need to be sticking with those core academic subjects, um, and those are going to take precedence. What did you, if, if a student didn't have an opportunity to do any business coursework before they arrived, because let's say their school didn't offer any of those types of electives, did that hurt them in the process at all for you? Not at all. Not at all. And, and again, that goes back to the, the college feeling as though we would teach you everything you needed to know. So I think that what was helpful was seeing other ways that students could demonstrate some sort of an interest in the field, whether it was that they were a part of their high school's Future Business Leaders of America Club, they were a part of DECA, which stands for Distributed Education Clubs of America, um, maybe they participated in the stock market game in seventh grade, and that was something that sparked their interest in the world of business. Or maybe they've had family members who work in the world of business and, you know, they had the opportunity to the job shadow or to visit with, with these family members. And that's what kind of showed them, hmm, maybe this is something that I'm interested in. So I think there's a lot more flexibility when it comes to the world of business and studying business at college in terms of showing that institution how interested you are in the field. Got it. So actually that leads us to um, the question of extracurriculars. And, um, you know, certainly it's important to be involved. And I do think if you're going to go into the business world, you're going to be doing things and working with people and often working on teams. Um, and so extracurriculars take on or help you at least understand a little bit more about how the student might handle that kind of thing. Is um, what were some? I think you just went through some of the more common activities mm -hmm. for students interested in business. Um, were there any other types of things you saw students getting involved in, and they were pretty common and and certainly just as valuable as maybe some of thing, things like DECA or Future Business Leaders or something like that. I think any opportunity that a student had to take on more responsibility and step into some sort of a leadership role or some sort of role that pushed them out of a comfort zone was, was great. So we had a lot of students who maybe were a part of Model UN or the debate club, and they had no idea what they wanted to do when it came to the world of business, but they knew that they liked um, researching topics. They liked standing up in front of a crowd and presenting to people, and that's a skill that's so necessary in the world of business. We also had students who were involved in student government, theater, um, students who enjoyed working in a collaborative setting, and a lot of the business world today and certainly at Babson, a lot of the focus of the courses is on collaboration and group work and team projects. And so seeing students thriving in that and excelling in that type of environment extracurricularly in high school was always a good indicator to us that, you know, they might be a good fit for, for our program. Um, and, you know, we also had a number of students who had after-school jobs. So maybe they worked as a cashier at Market Basket, and they just were really interested by seeing all the different people coming in and out of their job, by watching the flow of the customers and, you know, being a cashier. We had students who had after-school jobs at local banks as tellers, and that was a great introduction to the world of business. Those probably aren't as common as, as students getting involved with, um, you know, debate clubbing and student government, et cetera. But I think that, again, it goes back to the nice thing about studying business in college is that it is so flexible. And so as long as you, the student, as an applicant, can pinpoint for the person reading your application, you know, what exactly has led you 
to highlight your interest in business, I think you could do a whole host of, of things outside of the classroom. Yeah, and I, I, I love the the angle you shared about, you know, working at a supermarket, because actually, that's exactly what my stepson did. And um, he really did get a, a really nice insight into how business works. And he ended up writing his essay about his job at a um, at the supermarket. And he's currently enrolled in a business program um, at a state school and really enjoying it. And one of the things that probably is important to note for people is that a lot of times the business program is one of the most most selective to get into. It's becoming super popular. And so Mm -hmm. um, at some schools, you can apply directly into business. And at other schools, you can try applying directly into business, but you might not get into the business program and you might have to enroll in the liberal arts program, do two years there, and then apply to transfer into the business program. And so some of these activities where you get exposure to business um, while you're in high school and have something that you can talk about and, as you said, kind of pinpoint for the selection committee might help make you a more competitive applicant for direct admission right into a business program. Um, if you're not applying to a school, that's basically all business all the time, like a Babson is or a Bentley. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you touched on leadership. I know that at Wharton, leadership was crucial. You know, from Wharton's perspective, they wanted to be training future business leaders of the world. And one way in which they might get some insight into the likelihood that the student they were admitting um, would be one of those or had the potential to be one of those was to see real significant leadership um, in high school beyond just, you know, being captain of a sports team would be one potential leadership role, but usually the successful applicants had more than that. How important was that in, in Babson's process? You know, it was interesting. Every year we would have some really phenomenal students who had already started their own businesses, who had really done some incredible things in the world of business. And I think, as you said, you know, business programs being more competitive, um, you're going to see applicants like that within every applicant pool. But then, you know, there are also students who simply love numbers or they, they love marketing or they love advertising. And so they're the ones who are, you know, the treasurer of the multicultural club or maybe they started a lemonade stand as a kid and, uh, you know, tailored it to becoming a landscaping and, and you know, lawn mowing uh, organization in, in high school. I think there are a lot of different ways to build leadership, and what's most important is looking at it as uh, gaining responsibility. So you don't always have to be the captain. You don't always have to be the president of the club um, or, you know, involved in something that directly has the word business in the title. It's more that you are being given the responsibility to take on a little bit more ownership, take on a little bit um, more responsibility, for lack of a better word, um, and more trust to show that that you are that type of student who can be trusted. Right. And because the, the fact is that I think Wharton is such an extreme case and every business has people who emerge as real leaders, but every business would fail if everyone was a leader and no one was in the trenches um, doing some of the work that didn't involve leadership. And there's room for all of those people in the business world. And there is room for all of those people in almost every business program. Uh, and so um, if you ha- are interested in business, but you're not really a leader or you have a child who fits that profile 
as Christine said, there are a lot of ways to build that sort of um, profile in, in a way that will resonate with many, many schools. Um, Christine, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you. Uh, sure. Well, and thank you to all of my guests today. Uh, just a couple of things I want to note. Um, we have a few free guides. Um, They're really wonderful uh, and they're available to our listeners. One is about avoiding the pitfalls of college essay writing and the other covers the top 10 essay, uh, top 10 ways, excuse me, I'm still on writing, top 10 ways to find private scholarships. Um, The only thing you need to do to get them they are free to you, is to fill out a short survey asking a few questions about what you'd like to hear more about on the show. We want to put on a show that's useful to you, and the way we do that is by hearing from you. So please fill out the survey. Get the free guides. Um, You'll find it at www.getintocollege.com forward slash survey. So again, it's getintocollege.com forward slash survey. Um, next week, we're going to be talking about the FAFSA again. This time, we're going to be addressing very the frequently asked questions related to the FAFSA. Um, for those of you, you might have heard about this new application called the Coalition Application, and we're going to be uh, bringing you up to speed on where we're at so far with the Coalition app. Um, we're also going to continue the extracurricular activity series that Kenan and I kicked off earlier today, and we're going to be talking about things for students to get involved in who are interested in English and writing. Uh, as a quick reminder, every show is accessible 24-7 on the Voice America website and available for free uh, download from iTunes. But if you do want to listen live, we are here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Music.